Good morning. If, if, if we grab a seat and get started, Dr. Sabato would like to get started. As you can tell, this is uh, one of the highlights of the reunion week, and it's always a sold-out uh, room. So we're really looking forward to this morning, and make sure you have the tough questions ready for him if, uh, if he has time to take them. Politics is a good thing. That's according to Dr. Sabato. In July of 2008, as you will recall, he correctly predicted that Barack Obama would win by a landslide. He also predicted the Electoral College vote within one. And he was right on the money with 53% of the popular vote. In addition, in 2006, 8 and 10, he correctly predicted 98% of the winners for the gubernatorial elections, for the Senate elections, for the House. He was the most accurate prognosticator of any politician, of political, politician. no, not a politician, excuse me. <laughs> he, was a, he was a great prognosticator. He's home in the classroom. He's, home, he's at home in the television studio as well. He's written 24 books. He's authored many, many articles. And you'll all remember Feeding Frenzy, A More Perfect Constitution, and The Year of Obama. The one I'm really interested in is one that's coming out now on the 2010 midterm elections called Pendulum Swing. And I think he'll talk about that this morning and maybe give us a a glimpse into what is getting ready to happen. Dr. Larry Sabato. Thank you very much. And it, it's out. Pendulum swing is out. And, uh, and you, while, I'm, while I'm talking, take out your iPads and laptops. You have them. I know your Blackberries. You can go right to Amazon.com and order it while we're talking. Do it right now. Multiple copies. All your friends and relatives. That's pendulum swing. Pendulum swing, in case you didn't hear the first time. Uh, but it's about the 2010 elections. And, and the reason I'm able to get a lot done is because I have a terrific staff at the Center for Politics. Uh, I see Kyle over here, Kyle Condit, who's a new employee from Ohio, loves politics, eats it and drinks it and sleeps it, uh, which is the only people we hire. you know. And I know we've got others here. I don't know where they are at the moment. I haven't seen them, but I know they're here. So uh, we have some materials up here, and I hope you'll come up and, uh, and uh, take a look at what we do. We're in the business of civic education and civic participation, especially with the young, believing that if we can reach each new generation, teach them more about politics and public policy, the fundamentals, not ideology, that's their choice, but the fundamentals of the system, they'll be better prepared to become good citizens. And all of this, all across the country, we're in all 50 states. Uh, we've got uh, 2 million kids in the elementary and secondary schools enrolled in our Youth Leadership Initiative Program. 40,000 teachers in the classrooms. Every single thing is branded with the University of Virginia. So uh, we'd like to think we help re to recruit some good uh, young people, not that we, we need any more. We have too many applying and can't can't let but a certain number in, uh, unfortunately. But uh, uh, 
Uh, we, we like to think that we're recruiting even better students or helping to recruit better students uh, by getting the University of Virginia's name and image out there. Once people know it's associated with Thomas Jefferson, that's all that really matters, right? Uh, that's the way I look at it. Anyway, we're going to talk about politics. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Where's Tom Falders? I know. He, oh, there he is. Tom, you know, whenever I come here, he gives me a, a, a cheap UVA tie, and I mean really cheap. They're, they're polyester. I mean, really. Some have been in the back room of the Alumni Association since the 70s. I mean, really, it's embarrassing. I want you to see that I've got, from my TAs, a politics is a good thing, UVA tie, specially made. So knock off the cheap imports, Tom. <laughs> Stick to the wine. That's what, that's what we like at the Center for Politics. You know, a tough day, and you got a day at Newt Gingrich, you need a drink. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, or whoever it is. I, we'll, we'll spread the wealth, don't worry. Uh, but uh, we, we do allow, that's why we're a little bit off grounds. We, we allow heavy drinking uh, at the Center for Politics. Part of it is because I'm director. That's another reason why they have to drink. Well, you know, I mentioned Newt. I mean, you know, could be Arnold, could be the Donald, could be Joe Biden, could be, you know, you can, I just don't know uh, how I got so lucky, really, with all these people and all these characters. And, you know, I'll just, I'll just comment about a few of them, and then we'll get into talking about 2012 and what might happen uh, there and so on. But, uh, you know, take Arnold, for example. And this is really a study in human nature and partisanship. Same was true with Clinton and the Democrats back in the, back in the uh, 90s. You know, uh, despite all the facts that were obvious from day one, remember? I mean, it was obvious what had happened to a certain degree. You didn't know all the gory details, and maybe, maybe it would have been better if we never had known them. But we, we knew what happened. But partisan Democrats absolutely insisted Bill Clinton was innocent. Why, he said so. And he said so emphatically, right? There's no question about it. And so if you told the obvious truth, you were attacked, right, by the partisans. Take Arnold. Same thing happens on the other side. When he was running for governor the first time in that recall election in, in what, 2003, the fall of 2003, this information started coming out. And I, uh, I had this book, Feeding Frenzy, which is about how the media covers scandals. So I tend to get called with all the scandalous information. Oh, boy, it's fun. Uh, and you, you get all the details that don't appear in print. Of course, I'm nauseated by all of it. But... Uh, <laughs> But I try and write it down and remember it if possible. Um, but anyway, you know, it was all coming out. It was obvious what had gone on and how it, it was even worse than, than ever reached the newspapers. And you had charges from, you know, seven, eight women. Come on. They're all coordinating and making it up. Get real. But then that's what I said. All the emails, the calls, you partisan, it's outrageous. Arnold is totally innocent. His wife said so, emphatically. You know, people believe what they want to believe, and they just won't accept reality. And yes, I, I do believe, um, I used to believe that, that, I used to defend politicians on the basis that, that uh, they got more scrutiny than other people, and, and that is certainly true. Uh, but I used to think, well, it's probably about the same percentage in their population as in the general population. If you 
if you uh, scrutinized other people to the extent that politicians are scrutinized, you'd probably find about the same percentage of hanky-panky. Well, I'm a lot older now. Uh, and let's just say that I realize among politicians it's, some, it's two to three times easily what it is in the general population because, you know, power corrupts. Uh, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. They have so many opportunities. People throw themselves at politicians. They really do. I've, we've all seen it. Those of us involved in, in politics, it's embarrassing. What, what really goes on, and, you know, they travel a lot. Their spouses frequently live in the home district or the home state. That's why. You know, that's, you put all those factors together. Plus, who goes into politics? Very driven, ambitious people who think they've been blessed by lady luck. And, indeed, they have. They have won when tons of others have lost, right? So they are winners, and they assume they can get away with just about anything, and they're great, and they work so hard, and everybody loves them. And it's equally true on both sides. Please don't kid yourselves. It's equally true on both sides. And so it's something to watch out for. Maybe it's an argument for term limits. Uh, but it, whether you believe in term limits or not, it's up to us to scrutinize carefully and to, to be not cynical. We never want to get to the point where we're really cynical, but I think we want to be relentlessly skeptical of public officials, whether it's their private lives or what they're saying publicly. They say what benefits them at any given moment. They selectively pick facts. They ignore others. And, you know, this is what I deal with every day. And I think if you're paying attention, you're picking that up too. So it's always up to us in a, in a representative democracy. We're the people who make the choices. And frankly, we've made loads of bad choices over the years. We've made some good choices, but we've made bad choices uh, in both parties. So that's a, a, a little, a little uh, parable, perhaps, of, uh, that leads into this discussion about, um, about 2012. So enough of Arnold. Um, the, uh, let's see, the Donald, the total joke. There, there's a classic example of what happens in modern media politics. Uh, today, uh, everybody knew, I think from the beginning, that Donald Trump was never going to be the Rep Republican nominee <coughs> excuse me, for president, much less elected president. It was a complete joke. He was the premier clown candidate of 2012. But do you see how brilliantly... He manipulated the media, brilliantly manipulated, and they wanted to be manipulated. He was great copy. He, he attracted viewers, love him or hate him. You couldn't take your eyes off him when he was on the screen, drives up ratings. And the more they attacked, the more he benefited from it. That's always true with, with uh, people like Trump, and we've had a lot of them in politics over the years. He, he, uh, he was a less serious Ross Perot. Uh, and, and like Ross Perot, once he got into the political arena, he realized he couldn't take the scrutiny and pulled out. I don't think he ever imagined what was going to happen and could not have stood the scrutiny once his financial information was released, to say the least. I mean, just imagine having 10,000 reporters go through this guy's financial history. I, I don't think he got where he is completely honestly. I hope you might agree with me on that based on what you've, what you've seen of it. But we are, we're all manipulated that way. It's not just the media. We're manipulated that way. And again, we ought to be relentlessly skeptical of candidates like Donald Trump and any candidate 
who has simple answers. It's so simple. That was his favorite phrase, wasn't it? It's so simple. Hey, if it were so simple, it would have been solved a long time ago. All right? Democrats and Republicans aren't dummies. The ones who are in office, and they want to be popular, and they want to solve problems. If it were that simple, it would have been solved. You'll go into the oil fields and seize the, the, uh, the oil wells. Oh, please. And people bought it. I mean, people were repeating the lines. It really, it really makes you question the fundamentals of our system when so many people will just buy this blankety-blank hole. So, you know, again, it's another argument for civic education. Frankly, that's the only answer is better civic education. And then there's Newt. Um, Newt, again, never going to be president. Not going to happen. Sorry if some of you are, are Newt Gingrich supporters. You go out and try and prove me wrong. But I think you're going to be very frustrated. He was never, ever going to be president. He has enough baggage for the cargo hold of a 747. Uh, <laughs> And then, you know, on top of it, on to, have you ever seen a worse rollout of a campaign in your life? I mean, it was really terrible uh, with, you know, undercutting uh, Paul Ryan and uh, on uh, Meet the Press and, and giving the Democrats that great line about uh, extreme right-wing social engineering. Uh, you know, hey, I, I thought he was a right-winger. That was always my impression. But, you see, he says whatever the moment allows him to say, and on Meet the Press, that was the right thing to say. They forget that there are videotapes. Politicians always forget about videotapes. Uh, but, you know, Newt, it's, Newt is finished. It's just a question of when he realizes it, uh, because he's, he's clearly not going to get anywhere near the support he gets in the early states. He's very stubborn. I expect him to stay in for a while. I'll be surprised if he, if he uh, relents and drops out quickly. But you know, chances of being elected president next to nil. So, uh, you know, you look, at, you look at 2012, and you always look at the big picture first. What, what is an election about? And every election is different. But when you have an incumbent running, the election is mainly about the incumbent. It is thumbs up or thumbs down on the incumbent. Open seat races like 2008 are very different. Then it's comparative shopping, and it's the... The conditions of the election year overwhelmingly. But we're coming up on an incumbent election. And so all this focus on the Republican side, which is legitimate because there is no contest on the Democratic side. There could be one. I don't see anybody who's preparing to run. There's always Dennis Kucinich. Um, they're, they're forcing him out of, his, out of his Ohio district. Even the Democrats in Ohio want to get rid of him. Uh, they're putting him in with another incumbent. He can't possibly win the district. So he's actually shopping for a district. He's been out to Seattle. He's thinking about moving to Seattle while he's representing an Ohio district and running in a Seattle-Washington state district, which to the best of our ability at the, at the crystal ball, Kyle, you correct me on this if I'm wrong, but to the best of our ability to, to research has never happened before. There have been people who've represented two different states, but there's been a decent interval in between. Uh, you know, how do you qualify for residency in another state while you're supposedly representing the other state? That would be very interesting uh, to see. Of course, it would be tied up in the court so long that you'd get past the transition period. But anyway, I don't think it'll work. I can't imagine uh, anybody in another state uh, uh, going along with that, just on general principles, much less Dennis Kucinich. But anyway, I don't see Obama being challenged for renomination. So we focus on the Republican side, but the truth is it's, it's all about Obama. Just as 2004 was all about Bush, 
1996 was all about Clinton. And 1984 was all about Reagan. And 92 was all about George H.W. Bush. It's always about the incumbent. It's thumbs up or thumbs down. And people in America make a collective judgment on Election Day as to whether they want that incumbent in for four more years or not. Their general rule is better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. But there are exceptions. The exceptions are when you have a serious recession or great economic dislocation, when you have an unpopular foreign war that is dominating the scene. I don't know that Libya will will qualify. I think it was a dumb move. still do. Uh, but uh, I don't know that that will be dominant enough, but we'll see. You never know where these things go, particularly in the cauldron of the Middle East. Uh, or you have to have a massive scandal. Those are really the only three things, at least to this point in American history, that have ever produced turnover in the Oval Office. Now, what are the odds? Uh, let, me, let me state them for you clearly because Barron's, <laughs> somebody wrote me early this morning, uh, an alumnus from, who lives in Lexington, had the good sense to come to UVA. Let that sink in. No, I like WNL, but, you know, I mean, let's get real. Wait do you hear me talk about Virginia Tech. You think that's bad. I like groups of more senior alumni because they have the same distaste for Blacksburg that I do. You know, you're, you're not allowed to say that anymore. You know, we're in this era of harmony, and I just hate it. I just hate it. I I think, you know, your antagonism should show on things like that. If you can't do it there, where can you do it? You know, seriously, I hold my breath when I'm passing through Blacksburg. I don't know, I don't know what you all do. But it's hard to pass through there because of all the dirt roads leading to, to Blacksburg. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to get, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you have, what, are you all now politically correct? Does everybody turn politically correct? Okay. All right. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah. This morning, this alumnus from Lexington wrote me about some quote in Barron's, which was insane, that had, and it was a telephone interview, I remember it, and the reporter couldn't have gotten it more wrong. What I said was, and I won't even go to what he misquoted because it made no sense, but historically, incumbent presidents who have run for a second term have won them, two and a half to one. That's the historical average. Does it apply to any given election? Depends on those conditions I outlined, the, the economy, war and peace, and scandal. Uh, but the odds always favor an incumbent getting a second term because we're cautious like that. You know, we're a freewheeling democracy, but we're also cautious because we realize how many different groups and, and interests and you know, social organizations and everything else there are in the United States, and it's so difficult to keep us together. And, and so we try not to rock the boat and upset the apple cart more than we have to. I think that's our general orientation to politics. When we're unhappy, we make exceptions. So uh, the focus really ought to be on Obama rather than the Republicans, though I'll get to them. So, because all the Republicans have to do, all they have to do is to look at this big field of candidates, and who knows whether... Mitch Daniels will get in, or whether they can ever convince uh, uh, um, Governor uh, Christie in New Jersey to run. That would come in the fall if it happened at all. Um, and I don't think it would happen if Daniels got in. But you've got a big field of Republicans. And all the Republicans have to do, and it's easier said than done, is to pick someone out of the field 
that Americans as a group, as a whole, especially the swing independents, can imagine sitting in the Oval Office making life or death decisions. Now that eliminates 90% of them, if they think about it. If they think about it. Because, again, I apologize to those of you like Michelle Bachman, who's going to do better than expected, by the way. I'll bet any amount of money she does better than expected. If you think by nominating Michelle Bachman you're going to get back into the White House, I'm going to sell you the lower story of the rotunda. I would sell the whole rotunda if you weren't from Charlottesville or didn't live here and go to the university. But I'm going to give you the lower floor for a good price if you think she can ever get into the Oval Office and a, and a bunch of others you know, that are running. It's so easy to look at them and figure out which two or three, maybe four at the most, could possibly, possibly be imagined as sitting in the Oval Office making those decisions. And that's really the challenge facing Republican activists. Can they figure out which three or four? Of course, later I'll tell you. Uh, but you already know you're a politically interested in an active group. You could pick them out yourself. So we'll get to that in a minute. But for Obama, what matters for Obama? Well, uh, you know, if the election were held today, it would be extremely close. Simply, whoever the nominee was, if it's one of those adults that I'm talking about in the field, it would, it would be close because the economy is still very, very rocky. People are still very unhappy. Uh, unemployment is still very high. There are, of course, you know, green shoots here and there. People don't see green shoots. They see the lawn. By the way, you can't see the lawn right now. It's covered with water. I'm, I'm, we're joining with others over there. We're building an ark just in case any of this continues. But, you know, green shoots aren't enough. The lawn has to be turning green. People have to see it, feel it, touch it, smell it, feel confident that things are getting better, that the next four years will be better than than the previous four years, or that they are better off today than they were four years ago. And remember, they were pretty bad off four years ago. That was the peak of the economic crisis. The election is one of the reasons why Barack Obama won. So it's about, it's about him, it's about the economy, and specifically, if you had to boil it down, I would say uh, GDP growth, even more than unemployment. Unemployment's got to continue to fall, or the unemployment figures as a whole, they're so confusing because they release all these different dimensions of them, but they've got to give people hope. But the most important thing is economic growth. And generally speaking, you've got to be around 3%, maybe a little better, for an incumbent to be reelected. Where are we right now? Well, they just lowered the projections from a little above 3 to a little below 3 for the next year. So. It's got to surprise economists. I think it's got to bounce up a little bit more in order for people to have the kind of faith they need to reelect an incumbent. So that's number one, and that's reflected directly in approval ratings. Uh, the rule in presidential politics is that if an incumbent is at 50% or above, it really doesn't matter who the opponent is from the other party, and I agree with that. They're reelected. If they're between 48 and 50, all bets are off. It's going to be a horse race. That's where Bush was in 2004. You just never know what's going to happen. Then it's a battle between the parties and turning out their troops on both sides, more than even the swing voters. It's turning out the troops. Uh, so 48 to 50. If a president is below 48, as long as the other party is not nominated a Goldwater or a McGovern, then the president's going to lose. And that's where Ford was. In, for example, in 1976, he was just below 48. He ended up with 48% of the vote. 
So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a good rule. I think it will apply to 2012, and uh, that's what you should look for. GDP growth of 3% or above, uh, presidential approval on average, and that real clear politics average. You don't want to take any given poll. They have a margin of error. They're all over the lot. But when you combine all of them, you really have an enormous sample, and it's much more valid. So you look at that real clear politics uh, average. Or, of course, you read the crystal ball every Thursday, and then you'll, you'll know what's going on. You can even bet in Las Vegas. You can win big money, and you can give half of it or more, at least tithe, to the University of Virginia <laughs> and mainly the Center for Politics. Sorry, Wayne. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. They'll go through the Alumni Association. You'll still get to count it but it has to come to the Center for Politics. Do you all ever get tired of being talked to about giving money to UVA? You ne no, you never do. That's what I thought. Um, that's why I do it. It's not at all like those AARP requests that come in. They started for me, by the way, when I was 48 and a half, and I have enjoyed ripping up every single one of them. And I'm nearly 60, and I will never join them because they reminded me I was getting ready to turn 50 and a year and a half early. This has nothing to do with my topic, but I thought you'd be interested. Um, all right, back to politics. Uh, so that's the Obama side of the equation. It's really pretty simple. You know, and you say, well, you know what, These, this can happen and that can happen, and God forbid there can be a big terrorist act. Yeah, you know, there can be. That comes in the category of war and peace. There are all kinds of things we don't know 16 months ahead of time. That's always true. That's all I can tell you right now. You know, it's, it's, uh, you'd rather be the incumbent than not because historically that's been valid. The economy does appear to be improving. That's a good thing for the incumbent. But will it improve in time, fast enough in time for the election? We'll see. We'll, we'll see how things go over the next 16 months. Uh, and the, you know, I haven't seen any big scandals. You never know when one's going to break, but I've never seen one that's substantial enough to have an impact on the election to this point. All right, now the Republican side. Uh, you know, again, I guess we've got people who favor this one and that one and the other one. Look, here, here are the only ones who are adult enough to win a general election if the conditions permit. The conditions may not permit, but if they permit, I would include Romney despite all his problems. And clearly he's had a lot of problems. And, but he's, a, he's the front runner. He's a weak front runner, but he's the front runner. And that's why all this negative information has been, been flowing out early on. You see, there's something called oppo research. And all the candidates started with Romney because he's the front runner. So they've got big, thick files of every word he's ever uttered in public and every contradiction and every flip-flop and, and the negative aspects of this, that, and the other. Personal scandal, none. I'm, I'm absolutely good. That's the good side of the Mormonism. As, as far as I can tell, there's no personal scandal with, with Mitt Romney. So everything you hear that's negative will be about the health care mandate. And look, there are major differences between Romney care and Obamacare. No question about it. The problem for Romney is the central part of Romney care is the same as the central part of Obamacare, the individual mandate. And you think the other Republican candidates are going to let him get away with that? Given what the base thinks about Obamacare, of course not. And he's trying to get away from it. He has not succeeded. How's he going to run his campaign? It's going to be one of these powerhouse campaigns where you raise enormous amounts of money and get loads of endorsements, and you hope that the other candidates manage to, uh, in a demolition derby, knock each other out. 
And it may happen. You know, often that's, look at how many of them are being knocked out anyway for, for different reasons on their own without anybody even hitting them particularly. So that Romney would be one of them. The second one would be Tim Pawlenty. Most of you don't know anything about Tim Pawlenty. You know very little. He's governor of, of Minnesota for two terms and that kind of thing. But he is, he is in that classic position of being everybody's second choice, at least before Mitch Daniels gets in if he does. He's everybody's second choice. Nobody has any strong objection to it. Problem is, nobody likes him all that much either. I mean, he's likable, but he's not the first choice. You know, they don't, nobody mentions Tim Pawlenty. Nobody gets excited about Tim Pawlenty. And he's, I call him, and I like him personally, by the way. I've known him for years. But I kid him, I call him uh, Tim Polenta because I'm Italian, and, you know, you know Polenta. Uh, it's it's kind of bland, and it absorbs pretty much any flavor that's around. And he agrees. He agrees. But that can be an advantage in a general election. See, if you can get the nomination, that's a good thing. The problem is getting the nomination. The problem is exciting enough of the Republican activists to get them to make you number one because we don't have preferential voting. If we had preferential voting where you voted first, second, third place, I would bet you right now Plenty would be the nominee. Again, without Mitch Daniels being in, it would be Plenty. But that's not where he is. And he's, he's going to raise some money. Romney's got about $40 million on hand, I think. Uh, my guess is that uh, Palenti is going to show about $10 million in the next quarter. Uh, you know, one-fourth, and believe it or not, that's enough. Uh, you do not have to raise as much or more than your opponent to win. You have to raise enough money to get your message across, to register your message, so that it's in contention in the minds of political activists and the voters who turn up at the caucuses and primaries. So uh, I think he's in contention. I really do. Obviously, the third one, if he gets in, and he's under tremendous pressure to get in, is Mitch Daniels. Because the, maybe the Republican establishment is wrong. I can't, can't tell you, and they don't know themselves, but they think they're right. They look at this field, and they see a bunch of losers. And they think Mitch Daniels is the answer since Chris Christie and the others have been resistant to getting in. Uh, they've gone after Daniels hard. He is very close to all the Bush people. The Bushes have been calling like crazy, all of them. Jeb and George W. and H.W. and Laura have been calling the wife, trying to convince her that it won't be nearly as bad as she thinks. I, first time I've ever known Laura Bush to lie. It is, it is definitely as bad as Sherry Daniels thinks. But, you know, once you're in it, you can't do anything about it. Um, uh, but, you know, the White House is a very comfortable place. I'm sure she's talking more about what it's like to live in the White House. Yeah, well, who wouldn't want to do that? And be waited on hand and foot and have somebody to brush your teeth for you in the morning. But, you know, that's not how you get there. It's just a miserable process. I always say that the ones who say no, they're the only ones in the population who do not need a certificate of sanity. They have proven their sanity by refusing to get into this process because it is, it is really awful. And you have to have, they call it the fire in the belly, but that doesn't really describe it. It's, uh, you can set a piece of paper on fire, and it's not nearly enough to get to the White House. You have to melt steel with the fire in your belly to win the presidency. You have to walk, be willing to walk over both grandmothers laid end to end. That's just the way it is. No, I'm serious. And, you know, we're lucky that some people are ambitious enough to want to do it, but it's not, it's not a pleasant process. It's not pretty to see, and we all know that. So, uh, so you've got Romney, you've got Plenty, Mitch Daniels. Um, you know, it's, he's playing Hamlet, 
And I have never known a candidate to run who has raised so many public objections to running as has Mitch Daniels. He's, he has given us 27 reasons, really, why he shouldn't run. And usually they find one or two of those to latch on to for the public explanation of why they're not running. But maybe this is an exception because Republicans believe that the circumstances of 2012 might, might enable them to win, and they know they need a good candidate. And Daniels has had the experience at the national level, you know, as OMB director, and that cuts both ways. He was there for the buildup of the Bush debt. So he's going to be held partly responsible for that. The Tea Party will go after him on that basis. He's basically a social conservative, but he's called for a truce on the social issues, which politically makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't sit well with the social conservative activists in the Republican Party. That's going to be another problem. There are always problems. But a two-term governor of Indiana has been very successful as a governor of Indiana. He's clearly an adult. You know, people are going to see him as being responsible, being able to make tough decisions in the Oval Office. The only other possible candidate in the field who could qualify as an adult would be uh, John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah. He served for a year, uh, served for four years, and then reelected to a second term, resigned after a year to become Obama's ambassador to China. Well, that tells you right there there's a problem for the Republican activists. How do you sell the fact that you were Obama's ambassador to China? And there, there were lovey-dovey letters like you wouldn't believe between them. And, uh, Huntsman called him, at, called the president absolutely brilliant, and this and that and the other. Well, you know, again, these are just the letters politicians write to each other. You know the way they are. Uh, and then they'll turn right around in the back room and call you a dirty name. That's the way they are. But to the activists, you know, seeing that in print, you think they're going to nominate somebody who thinks Obama's brilliant? They hate Obama. You know, that's a big problem. And he's got uh, liberal views on uh, the environment and gay rights. How's that going to sit with the activists who turn up in Iowa? In fact, I think he'll skip Iowa. He has no chance in Iowa. Uh, you know, people talk about him winning South Carolina. Get real. Do you know the people who vote in the South Carolina Republican primary? You know, when they find out his positions on these issues, get real. Climate change, that's another one where he's, he's off the uh, reservation as far as Republicans are concerned. Now, having said that, he's the son of a billionaire. Uh, he could, his father could spend unlimited sums through a 527 or a super PAC. He himself apparently uh, is worth, I guess, through inheritance or other means, a couple hundred million. That's chump change, of course. Uh, very few of us would admit to, to that. Uh, a couple hundred million. You want to be in the company of billionaires, obviously. But somehow I think he'd survive uh, on that couple hundred million. He said he didn't want to spend his own money, which I think is a terrible mistake because that's one of his key advantages. But I don't rule him out. I do think it's unlikely he will win for the reasons I've outlined. Also, the other, the other kiss of death is he's the one the National Press Corps has picked as their favorite. Dead. Dead. That's right. Republican. How do Republicans react to the national media praising a Republican? Plus, he's got all of the McCain people working for him. Everything I hear from Republicans is, we're never doing that again. Well, they got another McCain. I mean, the same John Weaver, McCain's campaign manager, is Huntsman's campaign manager. So I, I just don't think that's going to sell. And that's it. That's it. You may like Rick Santorum. He lost his own Senate seat by 18 points. Hey, you can come back if you lose by a little. You cannot come back losing your own seat in a swing state by 18 percentage points. Get real. And, you know, Herman Cain, nice fellow. 
You know, get elected sheriff first. Uh, get elected to something before you start running for president of the United States. There, there are no Dwight Eisenhowers in that field. He didn't have an elective office, but he was Supreme Allied Commander during World War II. That was a key executive position. That qualified him for president. These other people, come on. I mean, you know, Gary Johnson, legalizing drugs, wrong party. Wrong party. You know, Governor Johnson, you know, that's his main platform. He's competing. He's splitting the vote with Ron Paul, who wants to legalize heroin. You know, so they're, com they're competing on legalizing drugs. Uh, you know, and it's a libertarian position. I understand the I understand the policy of it, but you know, you do have to have some reasonable sense of politics generally to get nominated, unless you're Wendell Wilkie. That was a great exception. So that's the situation for 2012. Uh, we can talk about the Senate and House races if you want to. Uh, we can talk about any political subject that you want to. I know this group; it always has lots of questions, and so I want. I know we've got until when is it, Wayne? 11.30, 11.30. Boy, you better have a lot of questions. I can always start lecturing again. That's a, that's a threat that will guarantee lots of questions. Let's go to some questions. Yes, sir. Good. The question is, and I'll repeat the question. Well, you have a mic. Go ahead. You can ask the question. Go ahead and ask your question on the mic. What are the chances of the Republicans taking over the Senate? Did you all hear that? Okay. Uh, what are the chances the Republicans taking over the Senate? Fair to good in 2012. By 2014, I think they're, I don't want to say nearly certain, but let's just say very, very good. Why? In 2012, you have twice as many Democratic seats up on the chopping block as you have Republican seats, just to start out with. So that means automatically Republicans have fewer to defend and can go after more Democratic seats. Indeed, if you look at the field, there are only two seats that are at all questionable for the Republicans. One is Scott Brown's in Massachusetts, because it's Massachusetts. You never know about that presidential coattail in Massachusetts. If I had to bet today, I'd bet Brown would get reelected. But we'll, we'll see what, how the presidential race develops. And then Nevada, where you have an appointed incumbent, Dean Heller, who succeeded the, the uh, marvelously, amazingly sleazy John Ensign. Uh, you know, he makes Arnold look like a, 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 a saint. Um, by comparison. Uh, so those are the only two seats. All the, all the other Republicans, I think, are just completely secure, even the open seats like Arizona. I just don't sign it. You know, Gabby Giffords, God bless her. May, may she recover incredibly fast, but she's not going to recover fast enough to run for the Senate uh, in, in uh, 2012. It's just not going to happen. And she would be the only Democrat who would have a, a real chance of winning that seat. So, uh, okay, let's go to the Democratic side. Where do you start? There are so many vulnerable Democrats. Uh, we've already got one turnover, and that's North Dakota. It's, it's gone for the Democrats. Conrad's retiring the Democrat, and I think Rick Berg, the, the one-term Republican House member, just got elected to the House. Boy, talk about luck. He is lucky. Better, his wife better watch him closely. Uh, but uh, he's after one term in the House, he's going to get into the Senate. I'm just kidding. I don't know anything about, about Rick Berg. We're, all, we're family here. I can say anything with you all. And I can count on you never to repeat it. <laughs> and if you do, fortunately, the honor system doesn't apply to faculty. Uh, we'd have a lot more open faculty positions if it did. I'm sorry I said that. Uh, 
Okay, so North Dakota's gone. That brings it to 52-48 Democratic. So that means Republicans only have to gain either two or three seats, depending on whether they have the vice president. Two if a VP, three if no VP. Montana, John Tester. I'm going to be, I'm going to be surprised if he wins again. Uh, Montana will certainly vote for the Republican nominee unless the Republicans blow it and nominate one of the crazies. All right? Then Tester could get back in. Missouri, Claire Caskell. Very serious situation for her. Uh, her only hope is that Republicans fight and feud and can't figure out who to nominate. Probably their strongest candidate would be Todd Aiken, the congressman who's just jumping in. There, there are at least two other major candidates already running, but you can have lots of splits uh, on the way to the primary process. But I think Claire Caskell's in deep trouble. Uh, Nebraska. Ben Nelson has been blessed, no question about it, and he has managed in a 70% Republican state to get elected as a Democrat, two terms as governor, and now two Senate terms, but I think his number's up. Uh, I really do. I think he is likely to lose. Uh, so that's kind of a, to, me, to my mind anyway, a nearly certain second seat for the Republicans. And then they could pick up either either Montana or Missouri or both, which could be three or four, and that gets them over. And we haven't even gotten to the close ones, like New Mexico, like Virginia, like Florida, like maybe Ohio, if they find a good candidate, which they haven't so far, or Pennsylvania, if they find a good candidate where they haven't so far. Uh, Hawaii, I doubt it. Linda Lingle, if she runs, a former Republican governor, would be a very strong candidate there. But I don't think she can win because of presidential coattails. It's a bad year for a Republican to run in a blue state. But there are plenty of red states. Remember, our system is such that, it, that the Senate actually favors Republicans because you have so many small, deeply red states, and they get two senators just like deeply blue California, right? So the system actually is, the Senate system is tilted toward the Republicans. So I've already outlined for you a clear path to victory. To get 51-49, it could go higher than that, potentially, depending on the presidential contest. If it turns, I think the worst the Republicans can do is 50-50. I really do. I just have a hard time seeing how they don't get 50-50. If Biden's still VP, it'll be a Democratic organization. But then you come to 2014. That would mean Obama was still in power, and it's his sixth-year election. They're always devastating for incumbent presidents. So that would help the Republicans. And, once again, incredibly, because 2008 was such a Democratic year, you once again have twi almost twice as many Democrats on the chopping block as Republicans. And I can already see which ones might lose. So I think Republicans are destined to take over the Senate either in 2012, a little better than 50-50, or by 2014, much better than 50-50. Okay, that was a long answer, but I think, I think you deserve it, sir. You look like a serious good citizen to me. All right, what else? Let me, huh? We'll get to that. Let me let me get let me get this lady in the back. Sir, you you interrupted, and you didn't have the mic. I, I really have to call you down on that. Did, what was your GPA? No, I don't want to know. That. I don't want to know that. I would never ask that. I'll just look it up. Larry, would you discuss the uh, the senatorial campaign that we're looking at here in Virginia? <laughs> you, did you pay her? <laughs> That's what this gentleman asked. Look, all the polls show it's a toss-up. I mean, uh, I think it'll go the way of the presidential race in Virginia. Now, as you know, Republicans 
carried Virginia from 1952, uh, with the only the exception of 1964, until 2008, when I think to everybody's at least mild surprise, if not great surprise, Obama not only won, he won it handily. He got 52.6% in Virginia, nationally got 529 We were th just three-tenths of a percent off the national performance for Obama. What people don't think about is, and Kyle is from Ohio there, Ohio, which we think of as much more likely to go Democratic, only gave Obama 51% of the vote. So Virginia was much more Democratic than Ohio, and there's a reason for that. Virginia has changed dramatically. Uh, you want to go on our website and look at a map that we posted, centerforpolitics.org, just, just go to Google and say UVA Center for Politics. You can get right to the website. And, and uh, it's called the Virginia Political Map of Virginia. And we have each of the cities and counties of Virginia expanded or contracted to reflect its real weighted votes. We just came out with a new version of it. And you look at Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is so massive, it stretches to the North Carolina border. <laughs> Northern Virginia is deeply blue. It is gaining population at a rate far in excess of any other region, including the outer counties of Richmond and some of the outer counties of Tidewater, which actually haven't been doing that well lately. Uh, that is the growth area in Virginia. It is a highly diverse region, a highly democratic uh, region, and it is making Virginia over time much more democratic. So uh, again, I don't know what the presidential picture is going to look like in the fall of 2012, but I can tell you this. The Obama people have already chosen Virginia as the number one place for pouring in the resources to maximize their vote. Because they look at it this way. They can afford to lose Florida, where he got 51%. They can afford to lose North Carolina, where he got 49.7. squeaked out a victory, 10,000 votes over McCain there. They can't afford to lose Virginia at nearly 53% because it suggests that they may be losing Ohio and Nevada and Colorado and places that Obama must win to get a second term. Therefore, uh, you know, he's got at least a 50-50 chance of carrying Virginia. The Senate race is going to go the way of the presidential race. Look, there's not going to be, there's not going to be any cross-voting. Can you imagine anybody voting for Obama and George Allen? Can you imagine anybody voting for the Republican nominee and the past chairman of the Democratic National Committee? No. There, it's going to be pretty much straight party, at least for the first two offices. People who vote for Obama are going to vote for Kane. People who are going to vote for the Republican nominee are going to vote for Allen. And I'm assuming Allen gets the nomination. He's got, you know, five or six people I've never heard of running against him in the Republican primary. There's a Tea Party woman who is running an aggressive campaign, Jamie Radke. But the votes aren't there. You know, the vote, unless it's an incredibly low turnout, which sometimes our June primaries are, but Allen will spend what he needs to get the nomination. Uh, so that's it. I think essentially it's going to go the way of the presidential race, and that's all I can tell you right now. They're as evenly matched as you get in candidates, both former governors, both with national profiles, both have large fundraising regimes, uh, good staffs, you know. It's even Stephen and, and uh, McDonald will be campaigning for Allen and Warner, uh, uh, Mark Warner will be campaigning for, for uh, Kane. So that's balanced. You know, you just don't have anything that kind of sticks out that makes somebody a favorite. And both parties privately admit it's just an even Stephen race will be probably until the end 
unless somebody commits a terrible gaffe on videotape. <laughs> yes. It has to be a new one, by the way. You can't recycle the old one. That's, yeah. System does not apply to uh, faculty. Thank God. Uh, partly jokingly. And Look at my field. Sir. <laughs> Can you imagine if I had to tell the full truth all the time? <laughs> well, I'd like to expand that to uh, the political arena as well. How do we get more truth or truthiness, as Stephen Colbert might say, into the process? Well, not through Stephen Colbert, uh, although I'm delighted that his wife is a UVA grad in case you didn't know that, and they recently contributed some money, I think, to the art department. So that balances a lot of the negative things I feel about Stephen Colbert. Uh, I'm very easy to influence. Just give money to UVA, you know? If you want to influence my political commentary? Let me see a big check coming to the Center for Politics. I mean big. I'm talking seven or eight figures. I don't go cheap. I don't go cheap. Okay. Look, I... You know, sir, it's always up to us. I said that before. But, you know, we are the, we're the ones who have to enforce a regimen of, of truth. And, you know, politics, politics is a tough business because you can legitimately interpret many different circumstances as being X over here on this side or Y over here. And that's the great debate of politics. You know, it's why we say it's the only sport for adults, right, is politics. Uh, so people, people want politics so often, or this is what I hear from people, to be like a Sunday afternoon tea party with the queen. You know, and everyone's so polite, and, and can I fill your cup, and I wouldn't dream of chipping that beautiful china. That is not politics. In a representative democracy, politics is the rough, cutting edge of our system. It is our substitute for Coup d'etats. It is our substitute for riots in the streets. We're supposed to mix it up. We're supposed to mix it up. There's nothing wrong with that. Please don't ask for politics to become sublimely bland. Because it really will put people to sleep. That's what it will do. We'll have lower turnouts. People won't pay attention. No. I think you have to sharpen the debate in order to get the message across to a country that is so busy, so involved in their own lives and private enterprise that they don't focus maybe as much as some other societies do on public affairs. So that's a little apart from your question about truth. We should always apply truth. I do like the um, PolitiFact system. Uh, and by the way, the partisans are famous again. The, the, you know the political fact system is now everywhere. It's national and in all 50 states. I'm sure it's in your local newspapers. And if it isn't, you ought to request that it get in there. And what they do is they take statements public officials make, these flat statements. The sky is green. And then they analyze it. And they talk to three experts in meteorology explaining, no, the sky is blue for the following reasons. And they conclude the politician is either lying or is colorblind, you know, one or the other. And they test out these principles, and they're very, they're very fair. They make sure they do an equal number on both sides, and they try to find an equal number of true statements and false statements and half-true statements. Here's the funny part of it. The partisans call up the newspapers, write letters to the newspapers, complaining wildly about the one-sidedness. See, they only remember the, the uh, criticisms of their side. When they see the criticisms of the other side, they say, well, of course, they're a bunch of liars. 
That doesn't mean anything. Our side is perfect. The other side is, is full of it. You know, but it's a great system. That is one way to keep them honest. And I have been told by press secretaries to senators, congressmen, and others that they are now more careful about the things they say because they're afraid of it getting picked up in PolitiFact, which then becomes a TV ad in the next campaign. So you see, these things can have an impact. So I support PolitiFact. I hope that you will, too. And if you don't have it in your local newspaper, and your lo the television stations can do it, too, ask them to include it. PolitiFact. PolitiFact. Look it up on the, on the net. Yes, sir. We get a lot of emails on uh, term limits. Is there anything serious going on on term limits? That's an easy question to answer. Nothing. No. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to hear. Not going to happen. It's like nonpartisan redistricting. Those of you who are Virginians, we, we just went through a real laugher on that one where everybody was posing and pretending to be nonpartisan and there was a supposed nonpartisan commission that had no power that was a cover for what was really going on. You know, it's, it's all very amusing. But believe me, it's not going to happen. The only way you ever get nonpartisan redistricting uh, or even term limits, you, could, you can't get them for Congress, remember, because of the Supreme Court decision. You can only get them for the state legislature. The only states that can ever get term limits or nonpartisan redistricting are those that have initiative, the initiative process. Now, that's one good thing about the initiative process. If anybody's familiar with California, it knows why we should never have initiative. <laughs> it's ruined California in so many ways fiscally. Uh, so I'm a and Mr. Jefferson would have been horrified at, at the the idea of referenda and initiative with you know everybody acting as representative. That destroys the very concept of representative democracy. So I think the cure would be worse than the disease to go to having initiative in order to get these other good things. And I do favor generous term limits. I do favor some forms of, quote, nonpartisan redistricting. But let's be realistic. If you put a map in a room full of kindergartners and let them draw the lines with crayons, they would still be making political decisions. They just wouldn't know it. They would be electing, in some districts, Democrats, and in other districts, Republicans. Why? Because most of the, the people vote for one party most of the time. The vast majority do. Don't believe these the Gallup polls that have 36% of Americans independents. It's absolutely phony. The real number of independents is between 6, 7, 8% of the electorate. The others are called hidden partisans. They say, oh, I'm an independent. I'm an independent because it's popular. And in fact, they end up voting 9 out of 10 times for one party, the same as the out-and-out -out partisans do. So it's really a small group in America, but they do swing elections when they vote because most elections are decided by less than 6, 7, 8% of the vote. Yes, sir. Uh, what would, do you think about uh, the chance of our uh, junior senator, the militant moderate uh, Mark Warner, uh, running for the big office in 2016? Well, I'm sure he'd like to. Uh, he's, he's, what do you uh, think about his chances? Well, his chance, remember, his, first of all, his seat is up in uh, 2014, so he'd have to give up the Senate seat probably to run, although I guess it's possible, you know, if you don't get the nomination, you could drop out in time to refile for Senate. But it would still be a risk that he would have to take. 
what I've said on this is if, if the gang of six succeeds, which is now, as of this morning, the gang of five since Senator Coburn dropped out, which means it won't work. You have to have three Democrats and three Republicans. They'll either have to get Coburn to come back in it on the debt. This is the debt limit negotiations. They'll either have to get Coburn to come back in or I think it's over. But if the gang of six, which Warner really was the key person in organizing, uh, even more so than Senator Chambliss from Georgia, who's another one of the gang of six, if that succeeds, if they can come up with an agreed-upon plan to reduce the national debt and the annual deficits in order to raise the debt limit, that would give him a platform on which to run, that he had helped to solve a big national problem. But if it does not succeed, then I think it's much more difficult. Now, the Democrats in 2016, maybe Biden will try to run. He'll be in his low 70s, and I just have a hard time believing it. Uh, maybe Hillary will want to run. Now, she does seem serious about not being Secretary of State in the second term, and I think she's wise to do that. Uh, she'll, she'll need a break. Then she can organize as she pleases if she wants to run, and she may not. Uh, she'll also be, I think she'd be 68 or something like that in in uh, 2016, and you know these things take a toll. Um, and there's a, you know, Bill's a full-time job, still is. Uh, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Uh, so I don't know what they'll do. But if if Hillary runs, she'll be a heavy favorite to be the nominee. I think even if Biden runs, I think Hillary would probably beat Biden in the primaries. But if neither Biden nor Hillary runs, then you've got an incredibly open field, uh, and and a lot of new Democrats are going to going to come and try to run. And they're not going to run no matter how well Obama does in a second term if he gets it. They're not going to run as Obama part three, the way George H.W. Bush did to be Reagan three, third term of Ronald Reagan in 1988. It will have to be something different. What that something different is, I don't know yet. It's just too far away from 2016. But to answer your question, it's very much in his mind, very much in his mind, no matter what he says publicly. Why don't we get a lady over here? Let's let's mix this up. Yes, I would really be interested in your opinion of our current Supreme Court and some of the more recent decisions. Boy, that's a broad question. <clears throat> She's asked about the Supreme Court. I'm not going to comment on any individual decision because you know we all have our personal views on these things, and, and that's not particularly my field. I will say this. I've, I've long felt, and I like several of the members of, of the court on both sides of the equation. I now call the Supreme Court Anthony Kennedy. I used to call it Sandra Day O'Connor uh, because basically it's 5-4, and it's whichever way Anthony Kennedy gets up and feels like voting on the really critical issues. And this is not a good thing to have the court as polarized maybe as the country and the parties are. Uh, and our Congress today is more polarized than at any time since the early part of the, of the 20th century in terms of voting against one another, the two parties voting against one another. I like several of the members, but I just, I just can't imagine that the founders would have agreed, had they thought about it, and they didn't think about it, to lifelong tenure for Supreme Court justices. Uh, I'm opposed to it. I wrote about it in, in my book, A More Perfect Constitution. I, I've called, as many law professors, I'm not a law professor, but many law professors have joined together and called in a nonpartisan way for sometimes 15-year terms, other times 18-year terms, 
guaranteeing each president a couple of appointments, because right now it's all arbitrary. You can get zero appointments or you can get, you know, uh, six appointments, as I think William Howard Taft did in one term, just because of who resigns or dies during the term. Uh, that, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. And the founders were so concerned about checking unlimited power. Would they really have favored this almost Olympic system of, of uh, godlike judicial figures who never, ever even face a hearing or renewal again? Look at the states. In all but a handful of cases, judges are renewed at regular intervals or not renewed as the case may be. It's, it's our Supreme Court that is different. I think they get very isolated. Uh, we've seen over time how many of these people evolve in ways that their appointing president could never have imagined. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. But I'm in favor of long but fixed terms for the Supreme Court. I didn't comment about Sarah Palin because she's not running to the best of my knowledge and ability. Now, maybe she'll shock us and, and come out and decide she wants to run. I don't think she would make a good nominee. I think she would, I think she would make the Republican Party platform the longest suicide note ever written. Um, and she would get a Goldwater 38%. So if, you, if that's what you're aiming towards, by all means, back her. Yes, sir, this gentleman here. Uh, I came across that you thought that uh, I came across that uh, you thought Mitch Daniels would be a stronger candidate than Tim Pawlenty. Is that so? And why is that? Uh, Pawlenty was a successful governor in a Democratic state. Well, I, I'm not really criticizing Pawlenty when I say that Daniels might be stronger. It's that Daniels has had broader experience at both the federal and the state levels. It's not. I don't mean it as a criticism of Pawlenty, and I think Pawlenty would. Would be um, would be a decent candidate. Uh, now, Palenti is, and of course, Daniels. You know, is not the most exciting guy, but it's it's his anti charisma that makes him interesting. Palenti doesn't really even have anti charisma. Uh, Daniels is anti charisma. You remember what we all said that that Abraham. If we'd had TV ads in Abraham Lincoln's time, his slogan would have had to have been not just another pretty face. Uh, and. Sometimes that anti-charisma approach can work. And I think, you know, for Daniels, uh, he's a very substantive guy. I mean, he'll, he will sit down with you and discuss policy at great length. And he knows it. Because when you're head of OMB, you, you have to learn everything about everything. You know all the little bits and pieces of the government, what works and what doesn't work and all the rest. So I think he would be quite strong um, in that sense. I think people would like him... Uh, they would find him quietly personable. And when we do reject presidents, in the rare instances when we do, and in modern times, we've you know, rejected a fair number, Carter and Ford and Carter and, and then uh, Bush uh, the senior. When we have rejected an incumbent president, we have tended to pick somebody who was the opposite of the incumbent. That's what we were looking for, somebody who was very different than the incumbent. Do you really want to nominate a charismatic candidate? Because I don't think you can compete with Obama's charisma and celebrity. You know, remember uh, McCain's ad, the biggest celebrity in the world in the summer of 2008, his anti-Obama ad. It, did, it was a good ad. It just didn't, didn't work in those circumstances. So I think Daniels fits that. Plenty kind of does. 
And I could, again, I think he would be fine if the conditions allow a Republican to win. But I think Daniels brings more to the table. But again, I'm not criticizing Pawlenty on that basis. What else do we have? Now, I'm going to let you pick. Yes, ma'am. Uh, do you have any um, idea of there will be any change in the Electoral College? A change in the Electoral College? Not in any of our lifetimes, nor maybe in the lifetime of this planet, to, to paraphrase John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, uh, in order to have a change in the Electoral College, obviously, you would have to have a constitutional amendment or a constitutional convention. Uh, a very good book, as I've mentioned a couple times, written about that called A More Perfect Constitution, which you'll certainly want to, want to get. And I have a whole chapter, a whole chapter. You can have fun for many nights because you'll fall asleep after each page. But many nights uh, reading that chapter about the Electoral College, but it's not going to happen. You're not going to get the uh, extraordinary majorities that you need, either in Congress or in the states, depending on which method of constitutional revision you choose to get it done. Think of the normal method of constitutional revision. And this, this is a way to understand why out of 9,000 proposed constitutional amendments in American history, 27 have passed, and really it's 17 since the first 10 came with the document. 17 out of 9,000. Why is it so tough? Because under our 50-state system, and it applied earlier in different proportions, but under our 50-state system, all it takes is one house of the state legislature in 13 states by one vote saying no. You can have a unanimous positive vote in all of the other state houses and state senates in the 50 states. Makes no, you can have a unanimous vote in Congress, both houses. All it takes is 13 states, just one house of the state legislature in those 13 states by just one vote saying no. Boom. And the founders wanted to make it difficult to amend the Constitution, and they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Okay, what, I think you said somebody back here. Okay. Uh, Larry, what is your take on the national debt? Are we ever going to do anything with this? I get depressed about it, too. I mean, I do, because talk, 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 and everybody's got a different plan, and, and you've got cover politically. If you've got a plan that makes sense, you can sell that. If only they do what I need say needs doing. Uh, we had a wonderful panel here. Uh, I wish that you could have been. Maybe, maybe some of you were. Did any of you come to my Alan Simpson panel? A couple of you did. We had, we had Senator Alan Simpson uh, and um, Dave Walker, who was the Comptroller General, and, uh, and uh, a, a fellow who was on the left on, on that believed that we could have, Dean Baker was his name, uh, former Washington Post reporter who believed that it was mainly uh, health care that needed to be reformed in order to reduce the debt. But we had a wonderful evening. Uh, and, of course, Alan Simpson, as always, was the star. And you know how funny he is. He's absolutely hilarious. Uh, only in Wyoming could somebody like that have gotten reelected constantly, offending so many groups <laughs> with quips. Uh, I accused him of, of trying to take my job, and, and he said... He assured me he wouldn't have it under any circumstances. Um, I also have to add, I shouldn't sell this, but at the end of it, he, he did this. He was wonderful. Uh, I got him to do this because we were at a conference together down in, in uh, oh, where was it? Somewhere in Miami uh, back in February. And 
this luncheon speaker was Chris Christie. And he's, he made the mistake of sitting next to me, and so we were chit-chatting, and Christie gets up to speak. Well, I had just heard the same speech by Christie the day before in Washington. The same speech. It's a stump speech. So I had no interest. Simpson hadn't heard it. Simpson was trying to listen. I kept peppering Simpson with questions. And he says, my God, will you leave me alone? I said, I will if you come to Charlottesville and talk to my class and then do a panel. He says, all right. That, that's how we got him to come. Uh, and, and then, when he, and we really put him through his paces. He's nearly 80. We put, you can't hear very well, but boy, he's sharp. Uh, and we put him through his paces. I mean, he had a full day of meeting with students and faculty and then doing this panel, and he, he just did beautifully at all of it. He was leaving. He was the last person out of the room. He was confronted by these nutty, nutty, nutty left-wing bloggers who came down from Washington and, and uh, filmed the whole thing and then posted some nasty piece. I was furious about it, but that's the Internet for you. I mean, it was read by 120 people, I guess, in the end. But he's the last person out of the room. He's sitting there arguing with him as they're saying, you're going to make old people eat dog food, blah, 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 which is ridiculous. So he's leaving at long last. And he turns to me and he says, you know, I have had a long, hard day. You made me do all this, and you didn't pay a penny of honorarium, you cheap bastard. <laughs> And I agreed with him. I'm a cheap bastard. He was absolutely correct. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, look, if you want to read an answer, you really need to read the Simpson-Bowles report. It's online. Because was it a perfect report? Of course not. But they actually got a substantial number of liberal Democratic senators and congressmen and conservative Republican senators and congressmen to agree on a solution that would have reduced our national debt by $4 trillion within the next handful of years. Yes, we have a $14 trillion national debt, but you're not going to get rid of it all at once. It would be too economically dislocating for the country. That was a very good start. And, and President Obama, and I'm going to criticize him for this, it was his, he appointed the commission and endorsed the, the findings because he wants to play politics with it just like many of the Republicans do. They have their own plans. They want, they'll tell you privately, we're just going, don't you worry, we're going to deal with this. We're just going to get past 2012. You can't expect us to say these controversial things prior to the next election, except that right after 2012, the 2014 election will start. <laughs> and then I'll hear the same things. You wait till the, till the end of the last two years of the Obama administration. Boy, we're really going to deal with this. No, it, you know, it's the same kind of kicking the can down the road that's gotten us this $14.3 trillion, $14 trillion deficit, which is projected by everybody to go over $20 trillion by 2021. So I'm as depressed as you are. I can't give you any solutions beyond what the Simpson-Bowles Commission did. I really urge you to read that report and then write your elected representatives or go see them in their town halls and wave the report. Get on TV. Say something obnoxious. You'll get on television. Like that guy who went up to Newt Gingrich you know, in Iowa. Get out of this race before you embarrass yourself further or whatever it was. You know. I can guarantee you'll be, you'll be internationally known. Then you can start charging for speeches like I would have liked to have done today. But did not, of course. All right, what else you got for me?
You got somebody over here. Yeah. There, sir, there, I we're going to have to get them to get you a mic, but we're going to get this lady first. Uh, I'd like to know what impact you think the Tea Party is going to have on the next election, both congressional and presidential. Great question. Look, the Tea Party, uh, here's, here's what I think the answer is. In the, in the primaries for the Republicans, it's a Republican group. They're 83% plus Republican. They really are. So they're going to participate on the Republican side in the primaries and caucuses. Now, I, I know a lot of them who are realistic. I've talked to them. They understand the system. But I know a lot of them that aren't. They're still arguing with me about how Christine O'Donnell could have won the election. Okay? Christine O'Donnell was not going to win the election in this universe at any point in time, in any state. Okay? She just wasn't going to get elected. So Christine O'Donnell... Is, is the prototype for many of the Tea Partiers. They're going to be for people like Michelle Bachman. They're going to be for Rick Santorum. They're going to go for Herman Cain. Fine people, not saying, you know, they're not nice people. I'm just saying they can't get elected. That's my job as a political analyst to say who can win and who can't win. The real threat for the Republicans comes in the fall. Ask yourself this. What will happen if the Tea Party gets irritated with the Republicans in Congress, they're already irritated, I mean really mad, at John Boehner and McConnell and the others because they didn't get enough of a debt reduction in exchange for raising the debt limit. All right? And then the nominee of the party is not part of their group or not considered Tea Party-ish enough. I could easily see, not the Tea, the tea Party is actually a bunch of factions, I could easily see one or more of those factions getting someone to run as an independent candidate, getting that candidate on maybe 35, 36 state ballots. It's really easy in a lot of states. In some states, it's tougher. But you can get 35, 36 states pretty easily. That candidate's going to get 1, 2, 3 percent, maybe more, depending on who it is and how much money they can advertise with. Well, just subtract that total from the Republican percentage, period. Then think about your key Senate races. You mentioned the Virginia race, for example. Suppose the Tea Party people, ma'am, are, are, uh, don't consider, and they don't consider George Allen pure enough because he voted for all the debt limits when he was in the Senate. He voted for the unpaid for uh, drug benefit. And all the, they've got all this list of grievances against him. Suppose uh, one of them runs, one, two, three percent. Boom, that's the election. Now, do I know that's going to happen? No, I have no idea. But I'm just putting it out there. It is a possibility. And if it happens, you can be your own political analyst because it'll be obvious what's going to take place. And that's my guess. What else do we have? We've still got a little time. Now, this gentleman has been trying to get a question asked. It better be a good one, sir. It better be a favorable, positive one. Which book would you like me to cite <laughs> in the answer? I know it's impolitic of me to ask this, and I'm sure you probably can answer it. Oh, great. Uh, but uh, as such a prominent political prognosticator, I wonder if you would consider disclosing any of your political orientation or history. Sure. Uh, you know who I normally vote for? I'm happy to tell you this. I write in Thomas Jefferson. You can check the precinct returns. <laughs> I don't mind telling you. And I, 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 I've already, we, you know, our great Leonard Sandridge, he isn't here today, I'm sure. He's hiding out after, after uh, having gotten well, his well-deserved attention here this last semester. But Leonard Sandridge, our 
our executive vice president, uh, had, a, had a big event. It was wonderful at JPJ. I, maybe some, were some of you at that event? Anybody go to that? It was just so, a couple did. It was so much fun. And you need, you need to see that on the UVA website. I think they still have it up. But anyway, uh, Leonard is retiring after having been here. Well, he was the last person to get his directions directly from Thomas Jefferson. He met with him daily. Uh, and, uh, and Jefferson, did, he liked English tea, according to Leonard. That's what Leonard has told me. But anyway, Leonard's retiring, and, uh, and I gave one of the, the little talks, um, along with a lot of other people that day. And my talk was about launching his Senate campaign. And we even had stickers. Let me see if I... I'm actually, yes, I've got one with me. Here we go. Sandwich for U.S. Senate. UVA colors. Sandwich for U.S. Senate. I'm telling you right now, I'm writing him in. And people say, you're throwing your vote away. No. Uh, I do it because there are some, some uh, people in my field and, and journalists who don't vote. They say, you shouldn't vote because if you vote, you're biasing your analysis. I, uh, my dad was a World War II vet, and he brought me up to always vote, and I've never missed a single primary, special, or general election, even when I've been abroad. I've never missed a single one, and I hope I never will. Uh, to me, I have to vote. But if you vote for somebody, you know in advance that you're going to vote for that person. And it, you're just human. It is going to spin you one way or another. I find it's much easier for me to be hypercritical of everybody uh, if I know I'm not voting for any of them. And so I write in great people associated with the University of Virginia. Um, if you're nice enough to me, I may vote for you. All right? There you go. It wasn't impolitic at all, sir. And I like your, what, what is that? Who you have? You missed me yet. Who is that? George Bush. Oh, that's George Bush. Okay, it says missed me yet on his, on his shirt. That was a mixed reaction, sir. I, I know would, that. I would lead quickly through this door. I took the at risk. The, at the I end know of the, that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd also like to ask you, uh, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, what party do you think he would favor? If Thomas Jefferson were alive today, which party would he favor? He would, he would found another Jeffersonian party. I don't think he'd be with either one. He would also, people always ask me this, if Thomas Jefferson came back to life, you know, what would he say about these things? And I, would, I always say he wouldn't say anything. He would instantly have a heart attack and go back to Monticello. He would be so shocked at what he saw. It wouldn't take long. We'd have to keep him away from primetime television. Uh, that's for sure. What else do we have? Anything? Anything? I think we need to leave shortly. Yes, ma'am. Is this a good concluding question? Okay. What do I think about all the cuts in public education? Uh, everybody has to sacrifice. Everybody. We all have to sacrifice. And it needs to be done fairly in a way that I think reflects the nature of the institutions, and excellence, which means, of course, the University of Virginia should not be cut at all. Thank you very much. We will begin loading the buses to the luncheons out the back door. We will be doing it school by school, starting with the nursing school first. So please... If you're not in the nursing school, hold tight, and we will announce when your bus is ready. Thank you.